listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Thursday night, we meet a Yukon-based social media content creator who took a ton of heat for saying Wales was part of England in a post seen millions of times. That faux pas, though, turned into a trip there and a warm welcome from the Welsh government. She tells us all about it. Should citizenship ceremonies for new Canadians be moved online? It's something Ottawa is looking at doing to cut down on wait times and costs. But will we lose a crucial part of becoming a citizen in the process? It's been more than a year now since most COVID-related restrictions were lifted, but foot traffic in many downtowns across this country are still well below pre-pandemic levels. What will that mean for the future of Canadian downtowns? But first, a bombshell in the Canadian retail industry today as Seattle-based retailer Nordstrom announced it's closing all 13 of its stores in this country in June and laying off some 2,500 employees. What impact will it have and are there more closures to come? A bombshell today in the retail world. But first, let's look back at when everything started off with so much promise for Nordstrom in Canada about uh, 11 years ago now. And we have over 15,000 credit card holders right now that are uh, reside in Canada. And so we look at this uh, opportunity as something that's really exciting. Ultimately, the customer is the boss. And there's a lot of great competitors up here. And the customer is going to determine who succeeds. And we're just excited about the opportunity to compete. Well, that was uh, the late Blake Nordstrom, who was uh, CEO of the organization back in September of 2012, as the Seattle-based high-end retailer announced it was coming into Canada. Lots of Canadians, of course, had shopped at Nordstrom across the border, so it was met with a lot of enthusiasm at the time. Well, today, that journey, uh, just nine years after they opened their first store, came to a sudden and pretty dramatic end. The retailer that started as a shoe store back in Seattle in 1901 announced it will be closing all of its stores in this country by late June. Its website stopped processing orders today, imagine. What was began with big plans and optimism will instead see 2,300 people lose their jobs. It leaves a big hole where the six Nordstrom stores and seven Nordstrom rack stores now stand, including in major centers such as Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, and Ottawa. It really boils down to numbers. Nordstrom reported today that sales had fallen more than 4% compared with the same period last year. Its Canadian operations represent just 3% of its business. Uh, they said today they'd never turned a profit in this country. So current CEO Eric Nordstrom said they do not see a realistic path to profitability for their Canadian business. Well, to join me, joining me now with a little more on what impact this is going to have, because it will leave yet another hole in the retail landscape is retail analyst Bruce Winder. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show. So, I mean, I guess if you look at the bottom line and what was happening with Nordstrom on the U.S. side of the business, which is really where they're focused, maybe not such a surprise, but wow, it it felt like a felt like a bit of a hammer blow for the retail industry today. It did. It's not unlike you know very different scale, but it almost felt a little bit like when Target announced they were leaving back in 2015. Obviously, not as big, not as big of an impact, but. It had that feeling, right, you know, where you just were sitting, where were you when this was announced? And, you know, that's what it was like for me today. Um, you know, I I, uh, I wondered if they were making money in Canada. I didn't see a lot of people in their stores. I thought there was too many stores and it was there was too many luxury companies like them and Saks. But, you know, when push comes to shove, when you have a tough quarter in, in your home market, you've got to take some drastic actions. And they had an, um, they have a, an activist investor as well who is putting pressure on them. So, you know, this yeah. is, 
you know, a very visible way to sort of show that you're listening by jettisoning your, jettisoning your Canadian division. Yeah, that active investor happens to be a Canadian, is he not? That's right. Yeah, I heard he's from Montreal, I believe. Mr. Cohen, uh, I believe is his name. Yeah, the chairman of GameStop. Now, yeah. when you look at when you look at, I mean, I remember when Nordstrom came in. Of course, I'm out west, so the the Nordstrom in Vancouver is right downtown. It always seemed to be doing relatively well. I think that store did pretty well. But what was it about their approach? Because I remember when Target came in, right away the criticism began. But Nordstrom seemed yeah. to be relatively well received. But I, I I suspect the pandemic did them no favors, and those are some pretty pretty big footprints they have. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, I heard that uh, the Vancouver store actually did really nicely out of the gate and lost some momentum. But some of the stores, you know, as you move across to eastern Canada, you know, I'm in Toronto and, and uh, yeah, Toronto is a big market like Vancouver. But we have three stores in Toronto. And, uh, you know, it just it sounded like it was overstored. Right. I don't think they made any catastrophic mistakes like Target did when they came in. You know, every, very nice stores. Nicely laid out, great customer service and training. It's just, you know what? I just don't think Canada's luxury market is as big as some of the American folks think it is. Um, and you know what? Luxury luxury consumption's changed. Less, less, you know, less are consumers going through these big department stores, and more are they buying directly from the brands they love, whether it's through the brand store or through the brand's website. Yeah, even I noticed it lately. I mean, there used to be a lot of tourists, of course. A lot of Asian tourists would come yeah. to the Nordstrom yes. in downtown Vancouver to shop and buy luxury goods. And nowadays, you know, there's uh, there's an outlet mall out near the airport in Vancouver. It's jammed. Um, yeah. But the, the Nordstrom wasn't as busy as it once was. Uh, Cadillac Fairview, uh, you know, a big mall owner in this country, uh, all the Nordstrom, the main sort of flagship stores, were in Cadillac Fairview properties. This is a big, big blow for them, too. It is, because if you look at the malls, Nordstrom was an anchor in all the malls, right? It was like one of the big stores that draw people in or supposed to draw people in. And now you've got this gaping footprint that Cadillac Fairview has to fill. And guess what? There's not a lot of people around who could fill that kind of footprint, right? Some people have talked about Simon's taking a store too, but outside of that, you know, what are they going to do? You know, are they going to put a Mercedes dealership in one? Are they going to chop it up like they've done so often with other big retailers leaving and break it up into smaller stores? It creates a big problem for the landlord as well. Yeah, and I remember that, that Nordstrom took over a lot of those Sears properties, so it kind of worked out well exactly. for, uh, for, the, for, the, for the mall owners when they came in. And you're right, it really doesn't feel like there's any other retailer, certainly no American retailer, maybe Simons, but they're pretty conservative about their growth. Um, so it doesn't feel they like are. there's anyone ready to step into those spots. No, and a lot of the big American brands are going to think twice about Canada now. They're going to say, okay, let's see. Target came here and failed, and Nordstrom came here and left, and Lowe's came up here and sold their business. So it's going to, you know, it, rightly so, it's going to make them a little more cautious about coming up here and opening up a whole bunch of stores at once and, you know, seeing how it goes. What about um, about the malls themselves? Because I think of the Eaton Center in Toronto, where they have a mall. There's the Rideau Center in Ottawa. It's a big one there and there, right. too. Um, they're out here in Vancouver at Pacific Place. That's a big spot as well. Um, sure. Come June, I mean, that's going to feel like a real void in those spots. It is. It's going to be a real eyesore for a while. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to see how Cadillac Fairview handles that in terms of how they're going to message it, what they're doing, scrambling to try to get some tenants. But yeah, these are massive boxes, you know, anywhere from 150 to 200,000 plus square feet. These are huge. It's like having a Walmart or something, you know, that's empty. 
So, um, and, you know, we have enough empty sort of zellers still that no one ever filled, right? So, you know, yeah. there's, a lot of re- re- there's a lot of real estate out there, a lot of retail space, and we don't necessarily need it all, at least for traditional retail, because more people are buying online now, right? And that's why retailers like at the West Edmonton Mall, they got creative and put a Honda dealership in the middle of the mall there in an ex-Sears uh, box or something. Yeah, it feels like uh, everyone's going to have to get a bit, bit creative about. Um, I, I suppose the only, I mean, and this is this uh, the only silver lining here for the many, many twenty three hundred employees, and they really did have great customer service at Nordstrom. I have to say, they did um, best in class. Th- yep. Yeah, absolutely. That that perhaps there is lots of work out there these days for those who find themselves uh, without a position in retail. Yeah, it's a little tough though because if you're a specialist in luxury retail. You know, you're going to have to find another job, right? And they're, I guess they're going to, they can go to Saks, they can try the Bay, they can try these brands, these independent brands that have set up their own shop now, or they may have to switch industries. A lot of people in retail switched industries during the pandemic. They said, look, I want an office job or something. It's just too precarious. It's been quite the day in Canada's retail landscape. Uh, Nordstrom today announcing they're closing all their Canadian stores, the six flagship stores, the seven Nordstrom racks. Uh, they're pretty much dotted right across the country from Vancouver all the way to Ottawa. 2,500 people more or less will be losing their jobs. They're going to shut up shop in June and leave. It's been just uh, about nine years since they opened their first store, but 11 since they announced they were coming. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, is with us this half hour. Uh, this Does this... Bode, is this evil foreboding for the rest of the year? I keep walking past the Bay and thinking, man, Nordstrom's busy compared to the Bay. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, I mean, the Bay the Bay is something that uh, is uh, a situation where I think they're very much overstored. They have too many stores. They're too big in terms of their footprint. I think they know that. They're just finding a way to sort of shut things down. They shut a couple of stores down in Alberta recently. So you're probably seeing them slowly shut things down because they can't be doing well. There's no way. But they're privately held, so we don't hear as much about them, right? But, yeah, retail is going to yeah. get tougher in 23, um, as you mentioned, just because we're, in, we're, we're facing a recession, right? It's a perfect storm against retail. And uh, now it depends who you are in retail. If you're a grocery store, you're doing well. If you're, yeah. um, you know, a value store like Dollarama or Walmart, you're going to do fine. But, you know, if you cater to the middle – or certain fringe categories, you know, you're going to, you're going to suffer. I also wonder what the impact will be on downtown. So, you know, specifically Vancouver, Toronto, uh, Ottawa, where all of them had, I mean, this won't be devastating, but anytime, I mean, I remember when Eaton's closed, what it did to downtown Montreal, you know, it, it did have a big impact and it took a while for them to figure this out. And it, and I was mentioning earlier, it just doesn't feel like there's a lot out there to replace them. So we may be seeing an acceleration in the shift of the way downtown cores look. Yeah, downtown cores are incredibly challenged right now. So, you know, depending on which downtown core you're talking about, you know, you might see maybe 50, 60% of the traffic of consumers down there working down there. A lot of people are still working at home. And that's had a major effect on downtown, and there's just not enough traffic down there. And even um, in Toronto, where I am, you know, H&M has closed a couple of downtown stores. And uh, it's really changed. The mom and pops downtown are suffering big time. So, yeah, the whole downtown approach to shopping is has changed radically. Um, and we're going to have to see if it ever will come back the same way it was before the pandemic.
Yeah, I would suspect that policymakers today, whether you're the mayor of Vancouver, the mayor of Toronto, or the mayor of Ottawa, may have seen this news and thought, "Wow, this is going to be this is going to be a bit of an issue." Even though Nordstrom didn't have a big footprint in this country, a necessarily large one, uh, it still feels like something that a lot of big city mayors are going to have to look at and think that's a, that's a, that's the kind of news we didn't need in uh, in March of 2023. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because like to your point, it's not so much how big they were, but it's what they represent, right? They represent a big American company who invested in the country and pulled out, right? You know, so that's not a good news story, right? That's not a story that, you know, is going to encourage other companies, whether they're from Europe or Asia or the U.S., to come up to Canada and invest. So uh, it's it's bad. It's bad for everyone. It's bad for policymakers, too. It looks like our economy is a lot worse than it is, and uh, it uh, creates further challenge for how they manage downtowns and the tax base of downtowns and, and how some of these A-list malls are, are performing. I was hearing today, though, that Nordstrom's problems were, were much more, were, you know, Canada was such a small part of their whole operation that it was easy, an easy, an easy loss, uh, an easy thing to cut, to cut off if they had to, uh, as you mentioned earlier, to show that they were serious about cutting costs. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe companies from other places will look at the specifics of both Target and Nordstrom and still think Canada might be okay. I mean, there's a lot of people here, right? Or more or less in the big cities, there's quite a few people who can still go shop. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's it, it. This is an issue mostly based on the domestic business of of Nordstrom, right? They they've had a tough 2022 in in the U.S. Um, their sales were down, their margins were down, their profits were down. They've got a the activist investor like we talked about from Montreal, who's putting a lot of pressure on them. And and uh, companies uh, will do this when things are tough. They have to show they have to have a sacrificial lamb, so to speak. They have to show that they're serious about their business, about cutting things back. And uh, this is what companies do. If you look at Walmart, you know, Walmart cut back their business in Germany. They cut back their business in other locations. Companies do this, especially when their domestic business is tough. They'll chop off their international operations to show that they're serious and that they're really looking at cutting costs. So, again, less about Canada. They didn't make money in Canada. They said that. So that's not good. You know, they should have made money by now. But, uh, you know, this is, this is much part of a much bigger conversation. Bruce Winder, I'm sure we'll continue this conversation. Thanks, thank you so much, as always. Yeah, take care, Ben. See you around. We all know that Wales is its own little spot in the United Kingdom, not part of England at all, right? Well, a TikToker, someone who makes social media content at UConn, she has tons of followers. Uh, Pavlina Livingstone Sudrich has 500,000 followers on Instagram, about 200,000 on TikTok. She makes these really compelling videos about being outdoors in Yukon. She lives in Whitehorse. They absolutely took off during the pandemic when everyone was cooped up and she was able to show people what it was like to be in the great outdoors in Yukon, which is one of the prettiest places around, of course. But at one point, um, she was making a video about a certain product that she liked. And it turned out the person who made the product, she wanted one. This person was in Wales. And she somehow said that Wales was, was in England. So she wakes up the next day and she's got millions and well, she's got a lot of, <laughs> she takes a lot of heat for it. People take this stuff seriously, obviously. Um, so yeah, she took a lot of heat for making that geographical mistake, that political mistake. Um, so after all was said and done, she wound up with an invite, an invite from the first minister of Wales saying, Mark Drayford saying, listen, 
Why don't you come for a visit and see what we're all about? See what Wales has to offer. Now, she picked up some of the bill herself, but part of it was funded by uh, by Wales to show her around. Of course, she has, you know, she is a, a quote unquote, an influencer. So it's not a bad idea for them to turn uh, some lemon into lemonade on the Welsh side either, because you can bring her there, show her around and she can uh, see what she was. Uh, she could see the place for herself. So it landed her what could only be called an adventure of a lifetime. And uh, she saw a lot of parallels as well and she learned a lot while she was there. Uh, but we find out how a, how a faux pas on social media, one that was, you know, the way things are these days. Here she is. She makes these videos. It is, you know, an honest mistake. She gets lambasted for it, for having, you know, made this mistake. And yet it all has a perfectly happy and beneficial ending. A learning moment turned into something even grander than that. To tell us all about it, Polina Livingstone Sudrich joins us now from uh, Whitehorse. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, Borda. Thanks for having me on. So tell me how this all began. I mean, you have a, a real sizable number of followers on social media. What is it? What is it that you do? You tell you show them and talk about. Uh, well, I primarily focus on outdoor content creation. I am born and raised here in the Yukon, and I spent a lot of time outdoors on the land growing up. And um, I started my digital platforms during the pandemic because we had, although we did have restrictions in the Yukon, we were still able to recreate all across uh, the Yukon. And, and I felt like I wanted to show people who were maybe con confined to smaller spaces, what it was like to just recreate and interact with the outdoor environment here in the North. Yeah, the, all that land when people were stuck in little apartments in big cities, you know, it must have been appealing. So tell me how this this Wales thing came about. What, what was going on? Well, it really came about out of a desire for me to wear my hot water bottle. Um, as people can imagine, oh. living in the Yukon, it's, it's it's a cold climate for several months of the year. And I'm, I'm like a regular person. I'm always cold, but I don't want that to hold me back. So I always have a hot water bottle like stuffed in my jacket. But, you know, I'm an active person. I'm out skiing. I'm gutting fish. The hot water bottle always seems to fall out of my jacket. So I was on TikTok late one night and I saw this woman in Wales who sells what is basically a baby carrier for your hot water bottle. And I oh, wow. immediately... Yeah, this was like, this was the technology for me. Right. The thing uh, you never know you need, the thing you never knew you needed. But that's great. A, yeah. A simple but elegant solution to a real problem. And so I contacted her and I said, listen, would you be interested in doing an exchange? If you send me a cozy majig, I can, you know, show it in use in, you know, a minus 40 degrees Celsius climate. So she was keen. She sent it to me. I went out for a ski one day. Sure enough, it was like nice and cold out. We filmed a really good video using it, but I was I was pretty cold when I got back. I had a I had a bit of a flu, and I I inadvertently said this woman who made the cozy majig is from Wales, England, instead of Wales in the United Kingdom. And I knew I made an error, but you know sometimes you just have to go with the first take. So I posted it kind of thinking it was a bit of an innocuous error. And I woke up the next morning and realized I had really struck a nerve and it was not an innocuous error. No, I mean, in the old days, that just would have gone unnoticed, right? But with the number of followers you have and the way things travel these days. So what was the what was the reaction like? Yeah, I mean, certainly nothing travels like scandal. And um, I opened the video and I saw that it had over 2 million views. And, and I was like, whoa, you know, that well, wasn't that 
I mean, it was like an okay video, but it wasn't like that big of a video. And I looked at the comments and it was all people just really angrily commenting that like Wales is not in England. And I had to kind of understand more as to like what exactly was the nerve that struck with the Welsh. And then when I learned more about the important work they'd done, the oppression they'd faced under English rule for hundreds of years, the work they'd done for cultural and language revitalization that is very distinct within the United Kingdom, I realized I'd really made a faux pas. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an inadvertent mistake, right? I mean, you knew United Kingdom, right? But but yeah, I mean, it, it happens when you're when you're taping something. And then you, you, it happens when you're doing something in one take. You can make mistakes like that. Uh, so how long before suddenly um, the first minister of Wales reaches out not to criticize you, but to invite you? Yeah, well, I, I realized after I'd made the error that I definitely needed to apologize for it. And so I... I always like to have like a little bit of fun and I don't mind being self-deprecating. So I, I made a video apologizing to the people of Wales for my error and then kind of jokingly invited the first minister of Wales to invite me to their country. Like, hey, uh-huh. I'm I'm game to fix my error and come and learn more about Wales. I've never been. Would love to see what what your country has to offer. And I just kind of left it there. I think about two weeks later, I just opened my TikTok account and saw that I'd been tagged in a video by the Welsh government. And lo and behold, it was a video of the first minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, watching my TikTok and saying, okay, Pavlina, we'd absolutely love to have you come and learn what our country is all about. And I I just couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. So off you go, right? From White Horse, I guess you'd have to, you, you know, you're on this journey. It's probably involved a few stops to get uh, to get to where you were going. Did you go to Cardiff? Yeah, yeah. It was a, definitely a case of planes, trains, and automobiles. We flew from White Horse to Vancouver and then on to Heathrow and then took uh, some buses and trains into Cardiff where we weren't able to meet with the first minister, um, but we we met with the speaker of their legislative assembly. We met with the former Archbishop of Canterbury. We got like a strong orientation on Welsh governance and their current political system. And then we were kind of sent off on a whirlwind nine-day tour around Wales, um, partially funded by the Welsh government, to, to really experience the diversity and range that Wales has to offer both geographically and culturally. So where did, where did you, I mean, I've been to Wales. I, I used to go there for work, especially you'll remember back perhaps to a time when uh, Prince uh, Prince William and Kate were living in, in Wales. So we used to go there quite a lot, actually. But tell me, how, how was it? Because it's really quite a spectacular place. Yeah, and we the, the Welsh government and tourism Wales worked really hard to put together an itinerary that would give us um, a really fulsome uh, experience there. So we spent two days in Cardiff, and then we went on to the Brecon Beacons, which is kind of their lesser known mountainous range. And we went on a beautiful hike of Penny Van in like zero visibility and upwards and sideways rain. It was incredible. It was exactly (laughs) how I wanted to experience that. I said, this is the best for the imagination because I could just imagine dragons in the mist. And then from there, we went on to match at uh, Wrexham FC, which a lot of Canadians will be familiar with. The most popular football club in uh, in in North America right now, considering they're still not even a you know they're they're still way down the divisions. But that must have been great. How was that? I think what was astonishing for me was to just see the the culture and the fan base that are really 
people that are born and raised in Wrexham. This is part of their regular Sunday afternoon culture. I, I loved it. I connected with some really young, diehard Wrexham fans that were able to explain the intricacies of the songs to me. Uh, so I love that experience. And then from there, we went on to to Northern Wales and then made our way back down the West Coast. You know, there's no shortage of castles in Wales. There's no shortage of enchanting uh, coastlines. Yeah, the land of castles, right? That's what they call it. It's uh, one, of, one of the nicknames. Wow. That sounds like such a great trip, except for, of course, the sideways rain. And anyone who's ever been there will know it rains in a wholly different way there than it does here in Canada. Yeah, I was I was really impressed, and and I mean to to be honest, we only had about two days of rain, and 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 then we miraculously had some beautiful sunny weather. We actually went to the island uh, near where Prince William and Kate had their house, so we we checked out some like beautiful scenery around there in in warm weather. We were in t-shirts, which coming from uh, the middle of the Yukon winter was just the best. There were blooming right. daffodils. I mean, I can't say I can't say more. It was wonderful. Yeah, that's Anglesey, right? Around where they were, if I remember correctly. If yeah, my, yeah. If my, my many trips that way take me back. That's, that's correct, on Anglesey. And we went to uh, Llandowen Island just off Anglesey, which is the it, most romantic spot in Wales. And really, it was beautiful. So uh, any any lasting memories of like good food, good music? Yeah, did, they, did, they, did you indulge in any tenors or any of that kind of stuff? The usual, the things that we all kind of think of when we think of Wales? what I really took back home um, was um, a profound appreciation for the Welsh people and their hospitality. When when folks found out I'd made this gaffe, the primary response was not one of scolding, but really an invitation to come and experience their culture. The highlight for me was also meeting Belinda, the the inventor and creator of the Cozy Majig. Of course, you finally met her because it got lost in the shuffle, didn't it? All, what you were trying to do was expose her thingamajig, her cozy, and I guess it got lost. Majig. You know, it, it, it got it, lost in all the in all the shuffle, or did it? Was it was it, it a success? You know, it didn't because um, since I made that video and since that controversy really drove up the views, she went from a very small scale production to completely being sold out. She creates these cozy majigs out of her small farmstead in rural Wales, and she's had to hire out. Because there have been, I mean, she's been sold out. She's selling cozy majigs all over the world. Oh, that's great. She's backordered. And so it was awesome to meet her, to see her studio, to meet her family, to meet her children. Her her parents live on the property with her. And so we all sat down to a really wonderful family lunch and a, and a beautiful afternoon. And it was just like meeting family. Um, right. And it all worked out for her for both of you. And in that sense, I mean, it, it, it's amazing because it could have just been sort of a video that amongst the many that you've done and it would have been seen and, and liked and, and then forgotten. Instead, it turned into this this whole adventure. It, it turned into a, an adventure and a really beautiful story with uh, meaningful and lasting friendships. And, and, you know, what really impressed me in Wales when I was there um, was just how much Welsh you see. And here these days too, depending where you are, but a lot of the street, a lot of the signage is in Welsh and so on. And, and any, I, I don't think I've ever pronounced a Welsh word correctly, but uh, but I tried, I tried. Yeah, and I, I I was really struck in the Yukon. We have eight indigenous languages, and right. there's a constant effort to preserve and revitalize that language. And the work the Welsh have done to preserve their language to remain a bilingual nation. I was so impressed by that. And I was able to engage in Welsh primarily through place names, areas like Bulch or Pennyvan, yeah. or or just small words like Croisho, welcome, uh Bendigedig, you know, and there was just such a an appreciation in in the videos that I was creating for even just trying. I mean, I my 
it's very hard to get the Welsh pronunciation correct, but people really appreciated the effort and were right there behind me to say, you almost got it. Here's, it's just, it's a little bit tricky. Try this way. Indeed, indeed. And and it must have given you a bit of because I, I read that and this the BBC has been covering this quite extensively, which is how I found this story, of course. Um, but it gave you a bit of a different an appreciation of home, too, because there are parallels there. There is there are places in Canada that, are, that don't uh, get the kind of attention that maybe they should. And you've been helping to alleviate that with your work. Yeah, it was certainly something I recognize, even with the initial error that, you know, here in the Yukon, a lot of people mistake our capital, Whitehorse, for Yellowknife's capital, or the Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories. And so I think there was kind of an understanding of when you when you live in a profoundly spectacular, unique corner of the world and people don't know about you that sometimes you 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 wish they would and so it was wonderful for me to be invited to share what a special corner of the world Wales is and I'm certainly happy to be home and continuing to to do that here in Whitehorse well, I'm not going to try to pronounce Dialch the uh, Welsh for thank you, but because I Dialchvall, you, right? I, you know, I, I just yeah, I'll, I'll keep working on it. Uh, Pavlina, congratulations on your trip, and thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks for having me on, Ben. We all know that Canadians pay some of the highest telecom bills in the world. Uh, if you've ever traveled, you know that to be true as well. Well, now if you travel and you have a roaming plan, you're going to pay more for that too. TELUS and Bell are set to raise roaming fees next Wednesday uh, by a couple of bucks each uh, if you roam in the States or if you roam internationally. Rogers so far hasn't said much or hasn't said anything. We don't know that we don't, they haven't telegraphed anything so far. They're just going to stick with what they already charge, which is 12 bucks a day if you're in the U.S., $15 internationally. So why are TELUS and Bell making this move now exactly? Is there anything out there in the telecom landscape that warrants it? Or are we uh, simply going to pay more for the same service? Joining me now is uh, Jerry Wall. He's founder and president of Wall Communications, which publishes an annual report on Canadian telecom services. Jerry, thanks. A pleasure to be here. Hope I can be uh, of some help to uh, to Uh, you and your listeners. I'm sure. I mean, this is, as always, you know, I think most people react badly to any news of uh, cell phone rate hikes. But this one is is interesting because it only applies to roaming. Not everyone travels a lot with their phone. Uh, What exactly is happening? Who is hiking their prices and why? Well, the why is a bit of a a conundrum uh, as to who's uh, doing the price hikes. uh, Both TELUS and Bell are increasing their prices. In the one case, uh, from $12 to $14 on a per day roaming rate for the U.S. Internationally is going up, I think, $13 to $15. So again, a sort of a $2 increase. Now, if you end up traveling for, say, a week or two weeks or three weeks in the U.S. and you're using that uh, daily roaming rate, then you're going to pay that amount per day, up to yeah. a maximum of 20 days per month. So you figure it out, you know. It adds up. It adds up for sure. One thing I wanted to mention, Ben, was we talk about this increase that's happening by both uh, TELUS and Bell. A significant increase, I think. If you look back about four years ago, five years ago, 2019, all the carriers were charging on their daily roaming rates in the U.S. $8. It's jumped from $8 you know, not that long ago, up to, you know, $14 in the one case and $13 in the, in the other case for U.S. and then higher for international. So those that's a very significant increase for roaming over the past four years. It is. Rogers, so far, no word from them, right? I mean, one, one presumes they'll follow suit, but you never know. 
Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about competition in the industry is how companies signal each other when there are very few companies in an industry. And obviously, one signal that the other companies watch is what are price increases or price changes by their competitors. So we saw two competitors, Bell and Telus, you know, following suit very, very quickly. And normally, if you have sort of a lack of competition in an industry, you'll see that the, the small group of competitors will all kind of increase their prices at the same time. And we haven't seen that with Rogers yet, as you said. So if they don't increase their price, I think that gives them a competitive advantage. And it might mean that, you know, they're being a little more aggressive competitively than just going along with the sort of the easy money that could be made by raising prices in this particular area. I know there there must be listeners out there who will be okay with this with this hike if they don't travel a lot and it means that other services the lower lower cost plans for instance will stay the same so if uh, if if the telecos decide they're going to take some money from travelers because they may have a little more money to spend and they enjoy the convenience of roaming without having to change sim cards for instance um mm-hmm. that maybe if they agree, if they if this means prices in Canada will stay a little bit lower i assume that some will be okay with that but is that the case it's, there's no guarantee that other prices won't change. There's, a, of course, a federal edict that requires a certain affordable plans to be offered by all the carriers. But, uh, you know, but to be fair to the carriers, I think if you look at their ARPU, average revenue per user, that's sort of a standard metric that's that's used in the industry. If you look at the ARPU that were, the mobile carriers were earning from their mobile services over the last few years, they took a real hit. You know, back in sort of 2018, 19, they were earning, you know, the high 60s per month per user on mobile services. And that's fallen to the mid and higher $50 range. So, you know, 57, 58. And so that's been a big drop. And a lot of that has come from the fact that people were traveling during the pandemic. Right. And so all that revenue that they used to earn from roaming was, was cut out. Now what we're seeing is that as people start to travel again, ARPU is is increasing. It certainly increased 2022 over 2021, but marginally, a percent or two. So it's not charging up. Now, with this price increase, I fully expect you're going to see a more significant jump in ARPU, at least for TELUS and Bell. Yeah, for revenue per user, certainly certainly if they're traveling. You know, in the European Commission, I know this because I live there, but uh, in the EU, um, they mandate that you have to be able to travel. You have to be able to roam essentially for free, right? Which is, uh, I suppose, we're never going to see legislation of that nature here. If you look at the plans over there, you're right. You can phone from Italy to France to Germany, and it's not going to cost you more. It's included in your plan if you take a look. When you look at Canada and the U.S., that's really, it's a a trading block the same way the EU is. And to me, there's no real reason why we shouldn't see the same kind of a concession or offering in Canada and the U.S. If you look at the U.S. carriers, when they offer an unlimited plan, they not o- only offer you unlimited amounts of data usage per month at a fixed price, a pretty good price, but they also throw in free calling and data in Mexico and Canada. Right. So that's so get, included yeah. in their service. And, and yeah. we don't see that in Canada, although we're starting now to see a couple of plans come out that are much more uh, what I would say affordable Canada-US type of uh, mobile plans. Right. So so if I, if I have a T-Mobile account in the States, I can come to Canada, go to Mexico, and my phone's roaming for free, right, essentially. That's it's it's no like being charge. in the same place. 
and we still don't know why this price hike is 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 there other than it's a way to recoup some revenue perhaps or <laughs> earn more right yeah yeah no, to, no we don't really know the, the way the roaming rates are set uh man is that these companies a t-mobile will make a negotiation or an arrangement with with rogers for example to exchange traffic in each other's networks so when you're in that territory you're you're using that person that party's network and and you're using rogers when you're in canada if you're t-mobile subscriber so those arrangements are made and and typically there's pretty much offsetting traffic between the two so the differential between what subscribers of t-mobile use in canada versus subscribers of rogers use when they're down in the states you know it often isn't that much of a difference now i haven't seen the latest numbers because those are kept confidential but i remember from some years past again there was fairly what i would call the reciprocity between carriers between canada and u.s carriers so it doesn't make sense for the u.s carriers to suddenly raise agreements with canadian counterparts I mean, there's no rationale that I can see that would make sense because generally they're exchanging traffic. So it is possible. I want to be fair to the carriers. I don't know what their agreements, their latest agreements are. And it's if they come out and say, hey, we're increasing rates because AT&T is charging us more or whatever. Well, OK, fair. They're, they're passing on costs. And I understand that as a business proposition. But we don't know that to be the case. And again, as I look at it, I look at the history of these arrangements I'm not convinced. Jerry Wall, thank you so much. Thank you. We were talking about Nordstrom packing up its bags and leaving Canada for good after just nine years uh, since they opened their first store in Calgary. Six of their big retail outlets uh, are going, as well as seven of the Nordstrom Rack uh, stores also out. And one of the many challenges that we've been seeing with downtown cores specifically, uh, where Nordstrom had a pretty big footprint, is that foot traffic really hasn't come back uh, to pre-pandemic levels. The latest data from January shows that in cities such as Toronto and Ottawa, it's still only about half of what it was back in 2019. It has increased in some smaller cities where lots of people moved during the pandemic, places like Kingston and so forth. Uh, But in other big cities and big major uh, retails or major urban centers, especially places that relied on government workers, it really has not come back. And that means having perhaps to rethink how downtowns work. And as we saw today, the loss of familiar stores in the downtown core is just one symptom of that. With more on this is Marwa Abdu. She's a senior research director with the Business Data Lab at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Ottawa. And she joins me now. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. This has been a, a, an interesting topic because I think with uh, you know with remote work and the return to work and all these things that a lot of downtown areas, certainly business owners in downtown areas, have been sort of watching to see what's going to happen. Are we going to see a return to something like life was back in you know late 2019? Um, what are you seeing from 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 the data labs perspective? You know, it's a topic that's on everybody's mind. And so the phenomenon with that's happening with this data, and we've been studying this data for you know, several months now, Um, I will start by saying that obviously there's a number of data sets that are tracking footfall and foot traffic. And what we're seeing is that, you know, there's tremendous variation across provinces, even a year after most restrictions have lifted in the latest month of data that we have is January. And the numbers still have actually, while they have picked up from December, they're still actually pretty low, something like 30 to 40 to 50%, well below pandemic levels in some of the biggest cities uh, downtown. So, you know, places like Ottawa and Toronto, 
are still very well below uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, and we can't just shock it up to, you know, record absenteeism, as we saw kind of from the labor force survey in December. There's something that's underlying that's um, causing these trends to kind of be more uh, reluctant to rebound. And it's not just, I mean, I can imagine I'm in a government town, Victoria, you're in a government town, Ottawa, we know what's been going on with the public service and how that's uh, been playing out. And one can imagine that, you know, cities that depended on a lot of government workers would still be struggling because that's still in the process of happening. But Toronto is different. I mean, Toronto is mostly private sector and they're also experienced. So we're seeing it right across uh, the spectrum, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. And it's, you know, you you touched on a really, really crucial point. What we did at first is we just wanted to look at these patterns and just really understand what was happening. You know, what what does what does downtown look like across, you know, downtowns across Canada? What do they look like compared to pre-pandemic? But then we actually looked at descriptors of these places. You know, who's actually working in these places? What industries are really shaping these places? And, and trying to understand why there might be such a you know, vast variation across cities and downtowns, even though restrictions have been lifted. So for instance, you know, cities where you had a greater proportion of, um, of women or dependents um, and couples who are married uh, were much harder to return to, or there were patterns where mobility was much harder to rebound um, in those cities than others. Another factor that we were also um, seeing is that where you had a higher share of the, of the workforce taking public transit to work also had slower kind of return to work rates. Cities it, that had had that criteria that had these um, features were also, you know, sticky or, or slow to return to work. So all of these factors really play a part in in people returning to work. It's not just a matter of, you know, the government saying, okay, we're lifting all of these restrictions that we had in place. And then suddenly everybody pops back into the office. In terms of your people you deal with, you know, businesses, mm-hmm. what has been the, what has been the impact then on all those businesses that, I mean, most cities yeah. are built around, not all exclusively, but a lot of cities had pretty dense downtowns with right. businesses that cater to all those people that happen to work there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another thing that we have been kind of uh, trying to think about, you know, what does this mean for the future of businesses around Canada? Um, And where are they going to go, you know, if not downtowns where, you know, they had the majority of their consumers coming in, and you know, when you're thinking about kind of the workforce being downtown, they go to lunch, they go shopping, you know, a lot of these businesses are now kind of suffering from this, uh, you know, big reduction in footfall. So what I will say is, again, it's all about kind of these little pieces. So we know from um, the commercial real estate services, uh, Canada, where they release reports about office vacancy rates. Um, We know that, you know, seven out of 10 major urban markets continue to see growing vacancies in offices. So I think that hybrid is hybrid work is here to stay. I think that we're entering kind of this new world of you know, where you typically had these big downtowns really shape and be the uh, front and center for a lot of these like uh, provincial cities, these big cities like Toronto and Ottawa, where the downtown really played such a crucial role, you're going to see a lot of spreading out. A lot of downtown cores are being reshaped slowly and reformulated. And even there's talk about, you know, converting office spaces into housing 
you know, if, if, right. if we're talking about, you know, the influx of immigrants that we're, we're expecting in the next, yeah. um, in the next while. But in the meantime, you're going to see a lot of businesses go through growing pains um, towards the shift. And it'll be harder on some more than others, particularly businesses and geographies that previously benefited from, you know, this vibrant footfall and traffic. We're being forced to think about what the future might look like and how to work around this new reality. Any downtowns where things are bouncing back faster? So here's the interesting part is what we're seeing in the data is that you have these first tier cities have, you know, had slower return to work. However, you're seeing these other cities like booming. So Kingston, uh, which is my hometown, is bustling right now. Downtown Kingston is back to work and and way above pre-pandemic level. So all those those places people moved during the pandemic are now seeing the, the fruits of that. When I talk about the spreading out, it's you're you're finding these second tier cities really come into their own and serve their populations in a very different way and really elevate. You know, a lot of businesses are now realizing, okay, we have this new kind of uh, surge in in population and people who had moved as a result of the pandemic or who had already wanted to move to those cities, and this was a great kind of opportunity to do that. And now these downtowns are benefiting from the surge. And so that's great news for Canada as a whole, bringing Kingston into the front fold only because I was there very briefly recently, and I was just awestruck by the number of coffee shops that had just popped up right. and the variety that existed that looked, you know, at the downtown core just looked so different from, you know, when I had visited three years ago. Yeah. I, I, the transition, I mean, the U.S. already had their struggle with, with emptying out of downtowns. I guess, as you mentioned, the real important part here is if you don't want your downtowns to die, you need mm-hmm. to re you need to reinvent them because what Absolutely. used to be shan't shan't be the same. We're getting the impression even three years later, especially with the trends you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it seems like you and I are both believers of, you know, if if change is happening, the best thing that you can do is really try to evolve with it. And I think that you're seeing that actually the the downtown cores that are really thriving right now are ones that have really been able to kind of understand where there's opportunity and where there's demand and 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 force and have that foresight as opposed to kind of um, try to stick to the 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 way that things should be or the way that things have been uh, done in the past. Yeah, if you're older like me, you're always nostalgic for the way downtown used to be, though. <laughs> of course, so that's part of that part of the problem is the nostalgia, right? Absolutely, uh, Marwa Abdu. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was great. Those children are dead because David Korsh had them killed. There's no question about that. He had those fires started. He had 51 days to release those children. He chose those children to die. We didn't have anything to do with their deaths. And I take full responsibility for the implementation of the decision. Yesterday's action ended in a horrible human tragedy. If any congressional committees want to look into that, we will fully cooperate. There's nothing to hide here. This was probably the most well-covered operation of its kind in the history of the country. I think you have to look at how this whole thing got started uh, and look back to February the 28th. That's a very important part of this entire tragedy. This is not a case of uh, child abuse. 
That was uh, FBI agent Jeff Lamar, Bill Clinton, of course, and Dick DeGaron, who was a lawyer for Branch Davidian cult leader David Koresh. Nearly 30 years ago now, February 28, 2023, so this week, marks 30 years since the start of a 51-day standoff in Waco, Texas, between Branch Davidians and agents of the ATF and the FBI. Suspecting that the group was illegally stockpiling weapons, agents from the ATF um, wanted to execute a search warrant at their compound back on February 28th. They'd hoped to arrest Koresh on suspicion of weapons violations and allegations of child abuse. A gunfight that killed four ATF agents and six Branch Davidians happened quickly. That sparked a standoff that would last nearly two months until on April 19, 1993. In an effort to end the siege, the FBI went in with tear gas, trying to force members out of the compound. You'll remember, of course, if you, I remember that day vividly, a massive fire broke out. And in the end, 76 Branch Davidians had died, including 25 kids. Some of the kids, victims, of course, had died of gunshot wounds. What happened that day is still a matter of fierce debate. What happened that day has resonated through America and beyond ever since, including the terrorist attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168 people on the second anniversary of the Waco incident in 1995. It would fuel conspiracy theories, turbocharge the careers of some some of those who broadcast them for decades afterwards. It has a long legacy, and to help us uh, look into it, Art Gibson is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Dayton. Thank you so much. Thank you. I remember that day very well. Of course, as a Canadian, I think, without a whole lot of context, it sort of felt like a Jim Jones, Jonestown redux uh, in, you know, in Texas. Uh, but clearly some other people in the, in the U.S. certainly didn't see it that way from the get-go. No, no. It was really a galvanizing moment. What would eventually become known as the militia movement is often traced to that particular tragedy. Gosh, the uh, well, the the careers of so many conspiratorialists, folks like Alex Jones, uh, folks like William Cooper, um, Linda Thompson, right? It, it really goes on and on. And in many ways, the birth of the Patriot movement as well. So arguments like the federal government is attacking citizens in an effort to establish a new world order or to move America in that direction to one global economy, one global system. This, this, a, a lot of these ideas are all tied in one way or another to what happened outside of Waco, Texas in 1993. Yeah, a galvanizing moment. I remember it so vividly because it was a prelude to everything that has come since. It was essentially followed live. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, it yes. sort of cast a view into the future with what we see today with social media and so on. So I can imagine what a galvanizing moment it was for people who were opposed to it. Um, there was an investigation. The government was the authorities were cleared of any wrongdoing. What was found? Well, pretty much that that. There, well, and therein lies the rub, as you say, right? That there are groups who believed that the Branch Davidians basically were confirming their apocalyptic beliefs that a certain number known as the elect had to die in order to begin the end times or the apocalypse. So, so that the Branch Davidians themselves were responsible for the fires and things of that nature. And then those who are more tied to conspiracy theories 
right? Folks who believe that this was an example of violence by the federal government against citizens, right? They, they tended to see this in terms of an attack on the sovereignty of individual citizens, an idea that's eventually going to manifest itself into the sovereign citizen movement. But the idea is really fascinating because it was unusual to have this much evidence, right? ATF actually had television crews with them. They really thought this was going to be a very different kind of raid. They'd be able to document it. They could show the effectiveness of law enforcement. And it just utterly backfires from the very beginning in the most tragic of ways that the, the branch divinians actually knew they were coming. Uh, law enforcement got lost and asked for directions. The individual they asked directions from a mail carrier was actually a member of the compound who went to the compound and they saw this as confirmation of their beliefs that Babylon, as they called it, right? The evil kind of Satanists out there in the world are coming to attack us as part of the prelude to the apocalypse. All of, all of this comes together, and in the end, there's this fascinating debate. Did the Branch Davidians set the fires themselves, or was the federal government involved in violence against them, not just through live rounds, incendiary tear gas, and things like that, but supposedly using tanks, moving buildings off its foundations, in fact, that's the whole premise behind Linda Thompson's Waco the Big Live video that gets widely disseminated through churches and kind of anti-government movement. It's, it's fascinating because it supposedly shows flame shooting from tanks when it's actually just the sun reflecting off the tanks. So there's evidence, depending on whatever viewpoint you have, there's interpretive evidence that you can use to justify your position. And David Koresh seemed like such an unlikely uh, rallying point for so, for so many people. I mean, Jim Jones certainly wasn't. Uh, at least I don't right. think he was back then, if I remember back far enough. Uh, David Koresh always seemed like someone it would be very odd for a whole group of Americans to kind of rally against that particular incident as being an ev- evidence of, of overstep. But I guess the high-profile nature of it, the fact that it all unfolded in front of the cameras, really provided that, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, I think so. And Koresh's charisma, right? When you read about his biography, it's it's kind of, how did he become the leader of this group, right? That that by all accounts, he should have failed. But the one thing he could do really well was connect with groups of people around biblical ideas and discussions of the book of Revelations, discussions about what passages in the Bible might mean. He exuded a warmth and a charisma in those moments that belied his modest upbringing and his lack of education. And he really could resonate with individuals who were searching for purpose and meaning in their lives. And then in terms of beyond that, the audio clips and the video clips we have of news crews talking to him and followers around him, clearly at his behest, right? He's incredibly good at taking 
complex ideas or biblical ideas or just we are people looking for a place to live, right? That kind of we're looking for our own space, our own place kind of rhetoric. He's incredibly good at that. And so in many ways, he exceeds expectations, but by simplifying complex ideas, he creates articulations that people can relate to. Eric Gibson is with us this half hour, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Dayton. He wrote an interesting piece in The Conversation recently about uh, the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the siege in Waco, Texas, that ended in mass tragedy um, about 51 days later, and just the impact it had then, the impact it continues to have today. Uh, In that article, you made some really interesting points about just how we continue to see the echoes of that day now, uh, specifically in things, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the Patriot movement and so on, right up to what happened on January 6th, to some extent, a lot of the rhetoric that was born of that day continues. Absolutely. The whole idea of a civil war that is inevitably coming because of government malfeasance, right? There's this perception of a lack of consequences for government malfeasance, right? Government actors, state actors continue to engage in behaviors or create policies that those who are conspiratorially minded, those who are looking for unique explanations, to put it tactfully, they see themselves as living in a period of ambiguity. And part of that ambiguity is tied to government overreach, right? And so they look to situations like Waco, a year before that, Ruby Ridge, um, a host of others, this idea that the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the militia movement, the patriot movement, they, this govern, anti-government focus is tied to that sense of ambiguity, perception of lack of consequences, and the idea that only by taking direct action themselves, usually some sense of a vanguard, right, where these groups see themselves as the vanguard of protecting some past history, past organization, tradition, culture, that only by taking action can they prevent a outcome like a civil war where the federal government will be destructive of the rights and freedoms and liberties of individuals? I mean, we certainly saw just how drastic that can be with Timothy McVeigh in 1995. I guess after exactly. 9-11, so much attention was turned away from that threat towards other threats, uh, and we kind of let it lie for a while. Uh, it feels like we're well aware of what that threat might look like now. I, I would think so. I mean, we just the situation on the insurrection in January 6th, the targeting of officials uh, throughout North America, not just in the United States, because these policymakers have different political beliefs or different social beliefs or represent different forms of identity that in that individuals believe or that groups believe are in of themselves a threat, that their existence is a threat. We come to, you know, what, what we might call these kind of existential or essentialist crises and the argument being that violence directed violence against the government, against state actors, against policymakers, 
is the only way to defend oneself, one's group, right? That thinking is not only tied to Waco, but of course uh, tied to arguments among conspiracy-minded media, social media individuals. Of course, in the in the piece, we talk about Alex Jones and how Alex Jones was tied to Waco, right? His birth as a media figure, his building of a following was actually directly connected to discussions of what happened at Waco, what happened to the Branch Davidians, framed entirely in terms of a violent government led by thugs of law enforcement killing innocent people. Art Chipson, uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, uh, qu- quite a fascinating way to look back at what happened 30 years ago. I think at the time, few of us who, you know, I was in my early 20s, I don't think any of us could have imagined that uh, that day would carry on. The, the repercussions of that day would be felt 30 years later. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I swear. I swear. That I will be faithful. That I will be faithful. And bear true allegiance. And bear true That is uh, something that many, many of you may have heard over the years. That is the sound of a citizenship ceremony. That one took place in Coburg a few months ago. Pete Fisher uh, shot that, someone I used to know back in the day when I worked in that part of the country. Um, you know, many, many Canadians will have fond memories of either having been there themselves or witnessed a family member go through that kind of a ceremony. Swearing an oath has been a legal requirement of becoming a citizen in this country since 1947. It really is a solemn ceremony. It's also a celebration. I've been to I've been to quite a few as a reporter, actually. And they're always I always found them to be magical events to watch from the outside. It was the fact that the families came together. It was the the many generations that were there doing it, uh, doing it often multiple generations of the same family would be there at the same time, or, you know, a whole family would come together to see an older member of the family become a Canadian citizen. And it just felt like one of those moments that you just couldn't replace in any other way, but doing it the way that it's done. Now that may seem a bit traditional and a bit old fashioned, but sometimes change is, it doesn't always work. Um, but soon, perhaps, because the federal government is looking at this, as soon as June even, new Canadian citizens could have the option of taking the oath on their own without the need for a citizenship judge or anyone there to watch over. You'd sort of do it online. It'd all be very quick. If you look at it rationally, it does make a certain amount of sense. Um, we're trying to cut down on the huge backlog uh, within the immigration process and the citizenship process. Where it is inexpensive, it does allow people to do it without having to travel. Um, you know, there are a lot of pluses, perhaps, on the efficiency side. But are we taking away something that shouldn't be taken away? Something that is intangible when it come, comes to becoming a Canadian citizen? Um, are we losing something very important in the name of efficiency? and in the name of trying to make a process a little bit faster. Andy Griffith is a former, Andrew Griffith rather, is a former Director General at Immigration Canada, and he joins me now with more on this. Uh, Andrew, thank you. Well, thanks very much for having me. Tell me a bit about this, because I think citizenship ceremonies, I mean, I've been to several over the years as a reporter, they really are magical in their in their way. Uh, what has been the impetus to try to see if there's not a different way of doing them? Well, according to the government notice, the impetus is basically a cost issue. It's cheaper if they don't have to administer citizenship ceremonies 
virtually or in person. So it largely, again, reading from what the Gazette notice said, it's driven by cost considerations, not consideration of policy or anything else. When one looks, I mean, I think from a cost perspective, it seems to make perfect sense. But what what do you see as as the you know the benefits and the and the detriments of that? Well, I've always felt that citizenship is something special in somebody's journey to coming to Canada, immigrating, and becoming a citizen. It's not just a transaction like getting a driver's license or your health card. It actually has real personal significance in the sense that they've made it. They're now part of the Canadian family, if you want to use that uh, somewhat cliche, but it's true. And I think and I think you've mentioned that you've been to a number of citizenship ceremonies, and you've talked about it being a, a magical moment. And I also went to a number of citizenship ceremonies uh, when I was in charge of the file and even after. And I would almost go sometimes if I was a bit down about you know some of the uh, issues at work and the bureaucracy and everything like that, because it made me realize just how important that work was and how important it was to the people who had you know, made the sacrifices to come to Canada, um, you know, left everything for the most part, left members of their family um, in the hope of a better life for them and their and their families. And citizenship was the kind of a sort of, you know, marker on that journey to becoming uh, fully integrated into Canadian society. And I think if you simply look at it from the point of view, oh, well, we're going to save a bit of money or we're going to save a bit of resources here, you're losing, the, in, in one sense, the fundamental point of citizenship, which is actually bringing together a sense of belonging for everybody who comes to this country to sort of belong to Canadian society. So it's one of those things that I think, quite frankly, the department is missing the point on the whole citizenship program when they propose a measure like that. Yeah, it's kind of like canceling canceling the grad the grad, but but not seeing where else you could save money during the rest of the school year. Just, I mean, that's probably a terrible analogy, but it just feels like I mean the problem is clear. Processing times are long. People are upset about delays. It's expensive, so you can see why they would be searching around for ways to save money. And this seems like a pretty straightforward one. Uh, what other ways? Could there be within the system that you understand well? Because clearly the back, we're, we're expecting, we're hoping to attract uh, many more people to come to Canada. That will create even further backlogs within the system. What are some other ways that could work other than getting rid of, uh, or at least trying to pare down the citizenship ceremonies? Well, I think it may not be a short-term solution, but it may not necessarily be a long-term solution either. So the government, to its credit, has started to uh, move, you know, applications online. Um, they're starting to, to try and get better sort of ways that they can provide feedback online. Um, so I think what you really need to do to, is to focus on how do you make the actual application process, you know, the forms you have to fill out, the way you have to fill it out, the evidence that you have to provide, how could they streamline all that front-end bureaucratic process? Some of it's necessary, of course, but... That's where you really want to try and get the savings because that's the part that people don't like. That's the part that people sort of complain about. You want to get streamline that as much as possible so that you can actually preserve the important part of citizenship, which is actually the moment that you become a citizen, the moment that you state the oath, the moment that you, you are with other new Canadians celebrating that moment. So I would you know, focus on streamlining the beginning which is not easy, admittedly, 
But that's where you should make all the efforts, not on the one part that actually makes new Canadians feel good about citizenship. Yeah. I, I mean, again, as I mentioned, I've been to many and it is it is such a special moment, you'd think. I mean, if, if, if you were to do away with it, I, I wonder what the long term impact might be. But it's certainly the, the photos you see of them, the way that, you know, you see um, entire families come together, even if just one member is becoming a citizen. It, it is quite a quite a remarkable moment. At the same time, we are seeing the number of people, uh, permanent residents in this country uh, applying for citizenship, or at least uh, being granted citizenship falling. And I guess part of and you mentioned it already, part of what they think the issue may be, is the hurdles you have to jump through and the expense to get there. Um, there must be do, do you agree with that? Is that where is the backlog part of the problem here? Well, I mean, there's a backlog in all areas of immigration programs, whether it's becoming a permanent resident, whether it's becoming a temporary resident permit, there's backlogs across the whole range. So it's not unique to citizenship. I think with citizenship, part of the reason that the backlog got higher was there was a period in the few months after the pandemic started that they basically shut down the citizenship program because they couldn't do virtual in-person ceremonies until they could start doing the virtual ones. The other issue that I think is also a significant one is less the residency and language requirements, but I think the citizen fees remain an issue, particularly for the lower income uh, immigrants who are coming here. Because for a family of four, it's about $1,400, and that's a lot of money, especially in today's times. Um, and so ironically, when you read, as, as a policy nerd, I have to, the, the justification for the change, they talk about improving the inclusion of Canadian citizenship by um, you know, shortening the waiting period, which is valid, but saving two hours of citizenship ceremony time. Rather, the big issue in terms of inclusion, in my view, is more um, reducing the citizen fees, which uh, the Liberal government has promised in 2019 and promised in 2021 and still no action. Right. So so then the department is left having to look for budget cuts, uh, to is having to look for these these savings itself, I, I suspect. And that's that's always an issue in government. And it's and it's a question that governments have to make choices and make products. And of course, Choices are never easy. Otherwise, they would be done easily. But, you know, you could make the case, and I would make the case, well, okay, maybe people will have to wait an extra three months more, and maybe maybe people will have to spend two hours at a ceremony, and we won't, you know, change, uh, we won't make the ceremony apart have to pay the price for removing those, because the ceremony is more important than those um, time savings. And I think that's that, that would be where I would be, you know, so I'm not sure to say you can, you know, make everybody happy. But if I have to make some people unhappy, it'd be the people who are waiting a bit longer, but not the people who actually want to enjoy and do enjoy that special moment in their lives. Andrew Griffith is with us. He's a former Director General at Immigration Canada. We're talking specifically about um, a proposal from uh, that department uh, to forego citizenship ceremonies. People would have the option to forego and take their oath online um, because Ottawa is looking to cut processing times for citizenship applications, which, of course, have become backlog like so much else within the system these days, the broader system. Um Andrew, we're looking at accepting a lot more permanent residents. I think Canadians in general are pretty uh, are are very much in favor of that. 
when you look at the system itself and the, you know, the citizenship side of this, and you mentioned it earlier, every system is backed up. Uh, are we, is the infrastructure there to meet the promises that are being made, or at least the, the vows that are being made by the government? Oh, that's a, that's a, that, that's a bit of a nasty question, uh, but it's, a, <laughs> but, it's a, but, but it's, a, I think it's a fair question. Yeah. And, you know, to put my cards on the table, I'm a bit of a contrarian on the immigration levels. I think the justification the government and stakeholders are making for large scale and ongoing increases in immigration are are flawed in some extent. Right. Uh, uh, just because, and you're starting to see some commentary and greater discussion of some of the consequences of those high levels of immigration, you know, housing pressures and affordability, healthcare pressures, um, infrastructure. Um, and so that's on sort of the, what I would call the externalities of immigration. You can bring the people here, that's not a problem. But when they're here, they're facing housing, healthcare, other issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point that you bring up. I mean, I think a lot of people are in favor. I mean, Canadians in general are quite favorable towards immigration, which is not always the case in every country. Uh, But you're right. It seems like this one is really about a number, a quantity over quality um, level. And and that's not not, not to be anti-immigrant. That's sort of to say, if you're going to bring people to this country and make them promises about a better life in a new land, you need to provide for that. And sometimes that can be a real challenge. Uh, well, I think that's probably the bigger challenge um, because IRCC, and yes, there are structural problems and processing problems and operational problems within IRCC, but essentially they can turn the dial up or down in the number of people who come into Canada. Um, not perfectly, but everything like that, but there's, but you can't turn the dial as quickly on housing or healthcare. And, and that's where the challenges are. And I guess my worry and i and it's been my worry for some time is that there is a strong consensus among canadians in favor of immigration but is do we risk coming to a stage where people suddenly say wait a minute housing is an issue healthcare is an issue maybe we shouldn't be bringing so many people in the country does that pose a risk to the overall support of the, of Canadians for immigration. I think there's a risk there. But the other point I would sort of say is it's not just the perception of people, white people like me. Mm. Immigrants also face housing challenges, healthcare challenges, and the like. And so there's a, a concern for all Canadians on these issues. And I think the immigration levels have to be looked at more seriously given those considerations. Agreed. And, but I also I think one of the things that people will be paying close attention to, because, you know, we do love our processes in this country, is whether there'll be backlogs or not. Right. We're going to I can only imagine we're going to start seeing stories in the not too distant future about not being able to meet these targets or these numbers because people are waiting in line for too long. And I guess that's where that initial question about whether the department is ready for it came from. Well, I, I, I don't think the department is. I think the department is working on some longer term IT initiatives that should allow the government to process uh, in a timely manner uh, more people. But large-scale IT programs are difficult at the best of times, and the government, quite frankly, doesn't have a great track record in this area. <laughs> no, because it, it, no, and it's complex. I mean, you know, I've it been is. involved yeah. in some, and I and I I appreciate the difficulties, but I'm saying 
you know, and, and from my perspective, which is more of a policy practitioner perspective, I'm saying if we can't deliver the numbers, then scale back the levels, because otherwise you risk undermining confidence of both people who are applying and people who are here. And in the meantime, we are seeing solutions such as this proposed one that would essentially do away with some of the more um, some of the more treasured parts of the whole immigration process, the citizenship ceremony. That's correct. And I think that's a, a, a bad trade off in my view. Andrew Griffith, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. This is a really I've been fascinated by the story since it started because it has all the elements of a John le Carre novel, the Havana syndrome. They've called it. It was the name given to a set of symptoms, neurological symptoms, really, but physical symptoms as well, uh, believed at first to be acoustic attacks on the U.S. and Canadian embassy staff uh, first reported in Cuba, in the Cuban capital, thus the Havana syndrome. Uh, since 2016, those reports surfaced that American and Canadian diplomatic personnel had suffered a variety of health problems, including headaches and loss of balance, as well as sleep concentration and memory difficulties. All of it strange and and the cause of it very mysterious. Um, and could a forward adversary have been behind it? I mean, given where it happened in Havana, there was a lot of conspiracy theories around, or a lot of theories, forget conspiracies, a lot of theories as to what could have been going on, and no one could really explain it. We knew that people were suffering from something. We couldn't figure out what it was. Well, now the U.S. intelligence community has come out to say what it wasn't. It doesn't believe it was the work of a foreign adversary. Uh, no other explanation was given. On Wednesday, yesterday, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released an unclassified assessment reflecting the view of views of seven government agencies, which uh, reviewed more than 1,500 so-called anomalous health incidents across more than 90 countries. The Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, says there's no evidence that those mysterious health ailments are the action of a foreign adversary. Instead, she says the symptoms are probably the result of other more common explanations, like pre-existing conditions and environmental factors. The report provided to Congress builds on last year's interim findings that U.S. adversaries, including Russia, were not involved. Ann Flaherty, ABC News, Washington. In a statement, CIA Director William Burns said that the findings do not call into question the experiences and real health issues uh, that government personnel and their family members, including his own officers, have reported while serving uh, their country. This was also a big concern for Canada as well. Our embassy staff in Cuba uh, had suffered from some, some many of the same ailments. So back in 2019, Global Affairs Canada engaged a team of scientists to look into the issue. Some of them even traveled to Havana to take a deeper look. One of them was Alon Friedman. Uh, Dr. Friedman is a professor of neuroscience at Dalhousie University in Halifax and Ben-Gurion of the Negev University in Israel. He's also lead author of that study called Havana Syndrome Among Canadian Diplomats. And we wanted to hear his reaction. So he joins me now from Nova Scotia. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, so listeners can be reminded a bit um, about what exactly prompted all this. Uh, I, if I remember back, it was a series of events in Havana amongst diplomats back in 2016, 2017. What was going on? Yeah, at that time, I mean, we were involved in this project a little bit later, but at uh, around those uh, 2016 to 2018, uh, diplomats deployed in Havana, Canadians and Americans started to uh, complain about health issues, um, mainly health issues that kind of reflected the brain injury, so uh, problems with hearing, uh, dizziness, a cognitive issue, difficulties to concentrate, headaches, and so on. That uh, started the... Uh, a whole um, 
issue to test why uh, suffering and from what and what is the cause for this uh, what what was called Havana syndrome. And you looked into it specifically involving Canadian diplomats and even followed some of them before and after they went. So a, a very thorough look into what was going on. Yes, correct. We we have over 40 diplomats, uh, many of them before and after they went to Havana. Uh, of course, not the initial cohort. The, the early cohorts uh, came to us uh, from Havana. And we did a whole set, uh, you know, many uh, brain functions, uh, including uh, vision and um, auditory vestibular tests so to test for uh, for dizziness, uh, brain imaging, different types of brain imaging, and so on. What did you wind up finding? I know that you, um, I mean, this is, goes well beyond what the cause may have been, but what did you end up seeing as the effect? Yeah, I, I think the first uh, thing that we have to um, understand, and, and we, we noticed that some of them, not all uh, diplomats, but uh, some of them really had serious health issues and complaints that they were supported by objective findings uh, that suggested some kind of mild, I would say, a brain injury. We have to stress that nobody, no one of no one, of, no one of them was hospitalized or admitted to a hospital in a severe condition or anything uh, similar to that. But it was all uh, serious. Uh, you know, people suffered. And that was the first uh, finding. And these findings were supported by some obje- objective findings uh, that suggested brain injury. Now, given where this was happening, um, it led to a whole bunch of speculation about what could be going on. Did you come up with any hypothesis about a potential cause, or were you simply looking at the impacts on these specific diplomats and their families? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we uh, initially, we didn't look for a for a cause, we wanted to document and try to understand uh, what kind of systems in the brain were affected. We found that it's uh, quite diffuse and, and different systems that are responsible for cognition and memory uh, could be affected in, and I should stress it, not in all of them, but in some of them. And then when we started to look around and under- try to understand more the problem, uh, we realized that um, in Havana at that same period, there was a, a huge exposure to pesticides. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Havana to investigate that uh, in more um, in more depth. Uh, we found out that the extent of fumigation inside houses of diplomats and others uh, was completely not reasonable, not according to any standards of um, Western countries. Uh, the use of high levels of pesticides from different types uh, inside houses and uh, pesticides are well known to that can cause at least uh, abnormal um, similar brain injury. So that was the hypothesis then, because I mean, clearly there's been so much uh, speculation about what could have caused this. The one that caught the most attention, of course, was some sort of uh, weapon uh, being used by a hostile foreign power. We've the U.S. government has now come out and said they don't think that was the case. Um, what do you make? What do you make of of the of what's been going on in terms of the investigation since then into a potential cause? Right. So the, the cause is still unknown. And of course, it's very difficult for us as scientists that are looking uh, at the brains of people to understand the cause. The cause is uh, the, the what we find in the brain or mild brain injury can be caused for various, uh, I mean, for many, many different causes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's for us, it was difficult, It basically impossible to identify one cause. 
What we did identify is a potential or environmental hazards that was certainly there. And I'm uh, far from being an expert on weapon and and attacks by foreign agencies. So I, I, I really have no idea if this if this is uh, happened or not. Yeah. But I think uh, the, the initial, the, the, the latest uh, assessment suggests um, uh, that you quoted now uh, suggests indeed that there is, uh, it's very unlikely that it was a foreign adversary and it's more likely to be uh, environmental factor. Alon Friedman is with us this half hour, professor of neuroscience. He's also the co-author of a, or lead author rather, of a 2019 study called Havana Syndrome among Canadian diplomats. Uh, Dr. Friedman, what are the... Um, one of the hypotheses that came out early and I've read about often is this idea of sort of, um, I'm not sure of the correct clinical term for it, uh, but sort of a, a psychosomatic, hyster- sort of a hysteria moment. We've seen it happen elsewhere. I, I gather from your from your research, at least, you found that not this there, were, there was real injury here. That was not the case. Yeah. You know, I, uh, what is hysteria and what is, uh, I mean, all the signs and symptoms of the people of this uh, diplomat suggested uh, brain injury. Usually speaking, most of them are very resilient people were in different places around the globe, and we didn't find any reason and any evidence that there was some kind like what people call uh, hysteria or uh, psychosomatic, uh, whatever it means. Uh, I personally think that uh, I don't like the term psychosomatic because yeah. it's it suggests that there is something psychological and psychology is also in the brain. So, I mean, right. if the brain does it, then uh, the question is why? Um, how important would it be to know exactly? I mean, I think the, the investigations continue, but from where you stand, how important would it be to understand what the cause was? And do you think we'll ever figure it out? You know, I, I, I don't know if we'll figure out what happened before, but I think it is uh, crucial that we uh, understand, uh, first of all, understand uh, causes for brain injury and environmental causes. And in this case, specifically, we we identified, certainly identified environmental hazard that shouldn't be, that diplomats and people in general shouldn't be exposed to these levels of pesticides. So I think uh, the research, uh, the ongoing research should continue to find environmental reasons um, and, and of course, other causes uh, for brain injury and try to prevent them. And with the what uh, Global Affairs Canada did together uh, with, you know, under our recommendation is to try to minimize uh, the exposure to un- unwanted chemicals. And I think uh, that proves itself to be protective. Did you manage when you were in Havana? Did you manage to get any insight into into the how the use of those pesticides would have been felt? I mean, you, I imagine you would have been looking to see if it had an impact beyond simply these diplomats. And maybe the reason we were finding out about it was because these diplomats were were, were complaining. Um, did you get a better idea of what pesticides were being used and whether they were having a larger effect on a larger portion of the population? So uh, yes, we went down. Uh, I personally experienced how it been done, I have to say, with the collaboration of Global Affairs Canada and and the team in the embassy. So everybody was very cooperative. I uh, went with the person, the guys who are doing the fumigation, um, we we noticed exactly how they do it, at least part of the chemicals that they are using, um, the concentrations, the chemicals, and the way that it has been done is known to be toxic and not healthy for, for the brain. And it, we would never do that uh, similarly in in Western country, or it, it's not according to any regulation of Health Canada, for example. 
So in that sense, we know we could stop that and prevent further exposure as much as we can. It's true that um, Cubans, as far as we know, continue to do it in that to, to, to extent that we don't know. I mean, we did report that to the Cuban government and the health authorities in Cuba, uh, and we uh, asked uh, to collaborate on a study that to understand whether um, Cubans are affected as well, uh, but we don't know the answer for that yet. You haven't had a response from Havana on on that collaboration, I guess. We've been, I mean, then the pandemic came along, right? Right after you, uh, right after you issued the study. <laughs> exactly, the pandemic. <laughs> exactly, yeah. the pandemic came along, and that collaboration uh, started, but never uh, continued. And I, I don't, I, I haven't seen any reports of new cases in the past few years, at least. And I don't know what why that might be, but it seems like there hasn't been any reports of new cases since that surge back uh, in the light, later part of the last decade. Well. The problem, of course, is what is a case is never been decided, not right. by the U.S. authorities or the Canadians. So what is a case? Uh, we we also don't have yet uh, a firm definition. And that's why I also think that the, the term Havana syndrome is actually there is no syndrome uh, that is accepted by the medical community or the scientific community. I can't comment whether there are more cases because the definition of a case is is uh, problematic by itself. Right, where where media and science <laughs> clash is on things like this, where we come up with terms like Havana syndrome, which I guess if you're a scientist, uh, doesn't do you any service, right? Absolutely. That's correct. Yeah. Alon Friedman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 